Well, good evening. How are y'all doing tonight? Excellent. Well, I want to say welcome to all of you that are here in our room and those of you joining us online. We're blessed to continue our study through the book of First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 3 tonight, looking at verses 18 through 22. And what we're going to be talking about is the usefulness of suffering, right? Now, I'm sure many of us are like, okay, can we get past the suffering stuff already, right? Let's move on to the blessings and, and all of that. But, you know, there's an incredible blessing in suffering, and the Word has a lot to say about it. And so we're going to be looking at the usefulness of it, really how we can persevere, how we handle our suffering, and why that's good for us. You know, it's important to understand, I think, for all of us, every believer, that you are not just a number to God. You're not just a number. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. He knows the good times. He knows the bad times. He knows everything, including all of the difficulties, all of the troubles, and all of the suffering. But he doesn't just know about those things. He cares. He cares. But sometimes, sometimes in the midst of our sufferings, we can be tempted to think he doesn't care. We could be led to thinking that, you know, gosh, why is this trial still going on? He must not care about me. Why is this happening? He must not care. And Peter's going to talk about some of that tonight and how we could look at our suffering and how we can maintain our, our manage our suffering and handle our suffering with the right perspective that helps us get through it. I think one of the most common expressions of pain in the English language is two letters, ow, right? You ever said ow? You know, if he was old enough to remember E.T., you know, with his glowing finger, ouch, right? Just dated myself there. But when we say ow, what are we doing? We're announcing to the world, to everyone around you, I am experiencing suffering. I am experiencing pain. And really that ow comes out of us because pain is a messenger that really demands all of our attention, right? When your body is letting you know it is, it is experiencing pain, it certainly lets you know, and it really takes all of your attention. There's nothing quite like pain that'll grab all of our attention and demand all of our attention. And you know, there's different kinds of pain. There's episodic pain, right? We have a moment, something hurts, something harms us. And then there's chronic pain, and you know, there, there's that pain that just kind of stays with us, lingers with us, doesn't seem to go away. Um, some people feel pain more intensely than others. You know, I was reading some more studies today, and they said if the cortex of a person's brain is thinner rather than thicker, what they have found is that that person tends to feel physical pain in a greater capacity. <laughs> so it's just interesting how God has developed our body and made our body. But I want to say this. If you're suffering tonight, if you're suffering tonight, and you have found yourself experiencing whether it's episodic pain, whether you're experiencing chronic pain, and I'm including all pain into this, not just physical, um, I can almost guarantee that you don't care about why it's happening. <laughs> I don't care about why it's happening. That doesn't help me. Tell me how to stop it. Tell me how to make the pain go away. Tell me, give me some resources, give me something. You know, when we're suffering, we couldn't care less about explanations and reasons for it. What we want is anything that can help deal with it or alleviate it, and that's where Peter comes in here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, 
If you remember, he's writing to a group of suffering believers who are under great persecution. Now, the suffering here that we're talking about is very contextual regarding suffering for your beliefs, okay? It's suffering because you're a Christian, because you stand for righteousness, because you stand for goodness and God's morality. And he's writing to these people who are suffering persecution because of this. Some of them are even experiencing physical pain and suffering due to it as, as people were, uh, would get round up and tortures would happen and all kinds of stuff that was taking place. So after giving encouragements as to why suffering comes and how we're to suffer and submit and yield and go through all of this as, as, as people in this world, Peter gets into how to manage our suffering through really citing the example of Jesus Christ. You know, and I think this is a great truth that God's truth won't make us immune to pain, unfortunately. God's truth won't make us immune to problems. But God's truth does indeed insulate us against the doubt that can creep into our minds when the suffering happens. That's one of the things that God's truth does. And so, as I mentioned Sunday, you know, sometimes when we suffer for our faith, when we suffer because we're doing good, right? We're trying to help people, bless people, take care of people, meet their physical needs, pray with them or whatever. And as soon as people find out we're doing it in Jesus' name, sometimes when we suffer in this way, we can be tempted to wonder why we're doing the good at all. Why bother if it's just gonna cause me pain? And we could start to doubt whether we are indeed doing the right thing or doing the good thing. And it's easy to think that way if the result of doing what you're doing is painful. But I truly believe that God's truth can stop those fiery darts of doubt. And so Peter here is asking us to consider the example of Jesus Christ in this context of suffering. Um, really, he's asking us to consider the example of Jesus to prove that good can indeed come from great suffering. Good can come from that, and knowing that good can come from it, and oftentimes there is a purpose of good in God's plan of allowing the suffering, can help us handle the suffering. Now, this particular passage we're looking at tonight is a difficult one to teach because it contains some historically difficult to interpret passages, and I will touch on that a little bit, but the other reason is because it absolutely promises suffering to believers. <laughs> And those aren't fun passages to teach. Hey, suffering's going to happen. Deal with it, right? Um, but we're going to deal with those difficult-to-interpret statements. Um, I'm actually going to deal with some of it on Sunday. I want to dig deeper into some of the difficult-to-interpret stuff there. And then uh, next Wednesday, we'll be looking at it too. But what I want to look at tonight is what these passages say in regards to us handling suffering. Okay, so some of the stuff that seems to veer off course a little bit, we'll deal with that in our next couple studies. And so tonight, we're going to look at four different things about suffering, um, the suffering of Christ specifically, that highlight his path of suffering. And they're really intended to be lessons for us to help us manage our suffering. And so the first thing we're going to look at is how Jesus' crucifixion shows purpose in suffering. Second thing is how the resurrection of Jesus shows permanence in the promise of suffering. Three, we're going to see that his proclamation shows planning in God's will behind suffering. And four, that the glorification of Jesus shows his power to get us through suffering. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. And we thank you, God, even for suffering. Lord, we thank you because, God, we know that it is in and through suffering um, that you mold us, that you shape us. God, it's in and through suffering, especially, God, and specifically when we're suffering for the faith, God, 
that we are allowed really to be partakers of a great honor and glory, Lord, Lord, before you. And so, God, as we suffer in this world for our faith, God, um, help us, Lord, to know how to manage that suffering, how to handle that suffering, how to persevere through that suffering, really by meditating and focusing on your suffering, Lord. And so, God, speak to us tonight. Bless us. Encourage us. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 18, we see the first thing here um, that I want to point out is, is that Jesus' crucifixion shows purpose, okay? It says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So just to get context here, in the verse before this, in verse 17, Peter had just, just wrote, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if God wills that, than to suffer for doing evil. And then he goes, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that's speaking of him being righteous and us being the unrighteous, okay? And then it says, why? That he might bring us to God. Now, if there was ever someone who suffered unfairly in this world, unfairly, having done nothing wrong, but quite the opposite, had done everything right, if there was anyone who had suffered the most in that regard, it was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ. He suffered for sins once for all, and it says he was put to death in the flesh. He suffered and died, but he didn't just die. He died an excruciatingly painful death that wasn't for him. It was for us. That word excruciating, interestingly enough, comes from, or, or, or the meaning of excruciating means from the cross, or out of the cross, ex cross, cruciating. And so when you think of the word excruciating, what that word is depicting is the worst form of ancient torture and death, crucifixion, the cross. Now we know that crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 330 B.C., but we know that the Romans perfected it. They made it an art form, crucifixion. And they had honed it down, crafted it, perfected it such that it was designed to inflict maximum physical torture on the victim before they died. It wasn't enough that someone was being killed, but they had to be killed slowly and painfully and in the most horrific, torturous way possible. Crucifixion, by the time Romans got it and perfected it, often took, um, it took days for someone to die as they hung on the cross. Not, not hours, not minutes, but days, days, 24-hour days of being nailed to a cross and hanging there, slowly dying, a torturous, torturous death. And because the Romans had got it to the point where they could draw out the pain and the torture so elegantly, as, as they might put it. Soldiers would often have to come along and break the legs of the victims because they simply didn't want to wait that long for them to die. And so we know that in the story of Jesus, they came to break his legs and found out he was already dead. Jesus suffered this kind of death for us. Even before the cross, the unjust suffering of Jesus had begun 
And Peter, the writer of this letter, was there when it happened. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. When Jesus said, hey, will you come and pray with me? And Peter's like, yeah, of course, I'll come and pray with you. <laughs> Falls asleep. Meanwhile, Jesus is, in the, gar- is in, the, in the garden, and it tells us that he's under such great agony that he's sweating great drops of blood. We know this today as hematidrosis. It's an actual, extremely rare medical condition where someone could be under such emotional, emotionally stressful conditions that the blood capillaries in the, close to the surface of their skin will burst under the stress. And as they're sweating in their, in their stress and emotional agony, the blood mixes with the sweat, and they're literally sweating great drops of blood. Then Jesus was arrested in the garden, drugged before trials, not one trial, not two trials, but six trials altogether. Every single one of those trials illegal because of when and how they were conducted. Then Pilate had him beaten with the flagellum. I mean, you guys know the story, right? The whip. He was whipped mercilessly. And it wasn't just a single strand whip. The flagellum was a, was a whip with many strands on it, and they would embed sharp pieces of bone and other sharp items into the leather so that when they would rip you and yank it out, it would actually literally pull off chunks of skin. His back was just absolutely ripped to shreds. And this was even before he was nailed to the cross. Peter is writing to a group of suffering people and saying, look, Jesus, your Savior, also suffered. He suffered. He knows suffering. He understands suffering, especially unjust suffering. He gets it. And then he says there he was put to death in the flesh, emphasizing that Jesus did indeed physically die. Now, this is a subtle perspective check, I think, for every believer, right? Sometimes, and, and I don't mean to make light of anybody's suffering, okay? But sometimes in our suffering, we could think what I'm suffering is the worst suffering anybody has ever suffered in the history of mankind, but none of us will ever suffer the way Jesus did. None of us will ever suffer for doing good the way Jesus did. Most of us will never experience anything like what Jesus went through for us. Yes, it can get bad. Yes, it can get really, really bad. There can be pain, episodic pain, chronic pain, but nobody will ever suffer the way Jesus did for us. Writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 3, three through 4 says this, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And the idea there is that Jesus suffered and endured what he endured so that in our suffering, we would be able to have a place to look to and say, okay, he went further than I did. He went all the way. And if he could do it, God help me. I know you got through it. Empower me to get through my suffering. But he makes a point there that says none of us have given our lives the way Jesus has for the gospel, for righteousness. But it's neat because it tells us there why he voluntarily went through all of that. Why he continued to do good despite the suffering, ultimately all the way to the end went through the torture, went through the beating, went through the whipping, all the way to the cross and hung there and died, 
why he voluntarily went through all of that. It says that he might bring you to God. That's the reason. That's the whole reason. That is the good behind all the suffering. That is the benefit behind all the pain that he experienced. So that you and I would be able to come to God. If you guys remember, when, when, when Jesus was crucified, when he died, it tells us in the Gospels that the veil in the temple was torn, right? But specifically, specifically, it was torn top to bottom. Meaning God is the one who ripped it from the glories of heaven. And that veil is what kept people separated from the presence of God. The veil is what blocked the holy of holies, the presence of God from the people. The veil said to the people, you can't go any further. God is holy. You are not. He is pure. You are defiled. You cannot approach him. But then when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped in two, torn away, and God now says, approach. The way is open. Come into my presence. Jesus was saying, I'm going to bring you to the Father by what I did on the cross, and the torn veil proves it. The point, the point, the purpose that the crucifixion shows us is that the very worst thing that could possibly happen became the very best thing that could possibly happen. What was the worst thing that could happen in all of creation and existence? That God, who is perfect and holy and righteous, that God would die. That God would be killed by sinful man. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen. But it became the very best thing that could happen. Why? Because it opened the way to God. It brought us to God. It allowed us access into the very presence of God. So the death of Jesus Christ and all that he went through really became the very basis by which God can forgive sinful people, the very basis by which man can be made right with their creator. So yeah, the worst thing that could possibly have happened in all of time and eternity became the greatest possible blessing for mankind. There's a philosopher named Peter Kreeft who put it this way. He goes, suppose you're the devil and that might be easier for some of us than others. Suppose you're the devil. You're the enemy of God and you want to kill him, but you can't. However, he has this ridiculous weakness of creating and loving human beings whom you can get at. Aha! Now you've got hostages. So you simply come down into the world, corrupt mankind, and drag some of them off to hell. When God sends his prophets to enlighten them, you kill the prophets. Then God does the most foolish thing of all. He sends his own son and he plays by the rules of the world. And you say to yourself, I can't believe he's that stupid. Love has addled his brains. All I have to do is inspire some of my agents, Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, the Roman soldiers, and, and get him crucified, kill him. And that is exactly what you do. So there he hangs on the cross, forsaken by man and seemingly forsaken by God, bleeding and crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you feel now as the devil? You feel triumph. You feel vindication. But of course, you couldn't be more wrong because this is his supreme triumph and your supreme defeat. He struck his heel into your mouth and you bit it 
but that blood has destroyed you. Peter's point to his readers here and to us today in looking at the example of Jesus' suffering on the cross is that suffering in the hands of a loving God has purpose. Suffering in the hands of a loving God can bring incredibly great benefit, and the best example of that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His suffering had purpose, and so does yours. So does yours. You may not know the purpose yet, but in the midst of your suffering, don't let the doubts creep in. Hang on to the fact that God knows. Yes, Jesus died, but that led to something wonderful. His resurrection, and that is my second point here. His resurrection shows us permanence of the promise. Now, verse 18, again, it said, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. Now, that phrase there, made alive by the Spirit, that is the starting point of the difficulties of interpreting this passage. Um, I'm going to address that in a bit, but I will say this. I don't believe that phrase right there is referring specifically to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? I'll explain that later. However, Peter does bring up the resurrection in verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism and what it means here when it says baptism saves you, I'm going to deal with that next Wednesday, okay? We're going to do a topical on baptism so that we have a biblical understanding of all that. But the overall section so far and how it pertains to us handling or managing, processing our suffering, he's mentioned the death, the crucifixion of Jesus, and now he mentions the resurrection. And so I want to talk about that resurrection a little bit, what it means to us. You know, the death of Jesus led to his resurrection, and he is alive forevermore. That means he's alive permanently. Jesus Christ is alive now and forever. He will never die again. He conquered death. Now, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, uh, a few of his last words were, it is finished. It is finished. And you might think, well, what was finished? Well, there's a lot. And we don't have time to go through everything that that means. One, for sure, our redemption was finished. The price was paid. Our salvation was secured. Forgiveness was available through his blood. But in the context of, of how do we, what does his resurrection mean to help us handle and manage our suffering? I believe that when he said it was finished, it also included his suffering. His suffering was over. The pain was just about done. All of the horrible pain he was experiencing hanging on the cross, all of the pain he was under from the tortures and the beating, that excruciating suffering was over for him. At that point where he said that, he had been subject to the hands of men for six hours at this point, and they did whatever they wanted to him. He had been arrested, yelled at, cursed, beat, and then they killed him. They murdered him. He was forsaken by his disciples, his closest followers, his best friends turned away from him. And he felt, at least for a moment, what it was like to be forsaken by the Father himself. But all of that, in that moment on the cross, all of that pain, all of that hurt, it was just about over. It is finished. He was going to die, but then he would be resurrected. And the resurrection of Jesus really changed the playing field. You see, the devil and his demons, they thought the death was the end. But he came back. 
his resurrection and changing the playing field secured for him and for us a permanence of life. A permanence of life. His suffering led to death. His death led to resurrection. And that resurrection ensured that we who are in Christ will live forever. Will live forever. Romans 8.18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. This life is not all there is. That no matter what happens in this life and what suffering you go through or you're currently going through right now, one day the promise of a new life in heaven, a resurrected body is coming. It is there. It is secured for you. And sometimes people say, that doesn't make me feel good right now this second. But if you meditate on that, I believe that promise is there to help you understand that you can get through the suffering just as Jesus did. That there's purpose in it. And then when it comes to the end, there is a moment where it will be finished. That suffering will be over. I don't know what you're going through in life tonight. I don't know what you're experiencing in life. But if you're a believer, I want you to take comfort in this. No matter what happens in this life, this is the closest to hell you will ever get. It is only uphill from here. This is the closest to hell you will ever get. And you might be saying, well, you just don't understand how bad it is. I, I may not understand how bad it is, but I do understand the difficulty you're going through. But pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the perspective to understand that the affliction in the big picture of forever is momentary and that you will get through it. God will carry you through it and he will carry you to the glory that is coming. And that glory that is ahead of you doesn't even compare to the sufferings you're experiencing. That's what Paul was writing in Romans. But if you're not a believer... You're not a believer, this life is the closest to heaven you're ever going to get. And the suffering you experience on this earth is but a shadow of, of the suffering you'll experience. Trying to, by choice, pay the price for your sins forever in hell. And that is not God's plan and purpose for you. He doesn't want that for you. That is why He died on the cross, to pay that price for you. But for the believer, resurrection means that the suffering will not last forever. That heaven is coming. That resurrection is coming. And in that resurrection, this is what it says in Revelations 21.4, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's what's in store for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's on the other side of the suffering. It's promised for you that there's no more tears, that there's no more death. You know, if it says there's no more death, that means there's going to be no more of what causes death, no disease, no sickness. There's going to be no need for doctors and hospitals because there is going to be nothing that can kill you in that regard. There is no more death. And it says no more grief, no more sorrow, no more pain. Whether it's episodic pain, chronic pain, doesn't matter. It will be all gone. And I, with you, greatly look forward to that. 
because that is our promise that sets before us. So the crucifixion of Jesus shows us purpose in suffering. The resurrection shows us the permanence of the promise that there will be a life forever lived, free from all of it. And the third thing is that his declaration shows planning on God's part. Now, I'm going to skim through these verses because these are the verses we're going to deal with on Sunday. Um, but it says in, starting in verse 18, again, it says, He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when Peter wrote these words, I doubt that he had any idea that these words would become some of the most difficult to interpret words in the entire New Testament. From the time they were written until now, People have wrestled with these words, debated these words, disagreed on what does Peter mean when he's talking here? Where did Christ go? When did he go there? Who did he speak to? What did he say? Right? Peter just simply didn't write with all the depth and detail to definitively answer any of those questions here. And, and to be quite honest, he writes as if his original readers were already familiar with the details of this, and so he didn't need to over-explain it to them. Ultimately, the answers to these questions, although very interesting, right? Who are the spirits in prison, and what does that all mean? Very interesting stuff to, to look at, if, especially if you're a Bible student. But ultimately, it has nothing to do with our salvation. It has nothing to do with our, our future hope of heaven. And so there's room to disagree on the particulars, I think, but I just want to point out a couple things tonight, and then we're, we're going to kind of dig into that Sunday because I want to. All right. Part of the issues um, with interpreting what he means here, um, it starts in the end of verse 18 where he says, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, like I said, I don't think that that phrase is referring to the bodily resurrection of Jesus, specifically in the way he does in verse 21. Um, because one, I believe if Peter meant that, he could have said something like he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the flesh, right? That would have directly referenced his bodily resurrection. But as I said, translators uh, wrestle with this whole passage. And to be quite honest, translators and scholars and like people that are just way smarter than I am, they still don't agree on how the word spirit should be rendered here. Um, if you're looking in the Christian Standard Bible, you'll notice spirit has a capital S, Right? But different translations have it rendered that he was made alive by the Spirit. He was made alive in the Spirit. One translation renders it, he was made alive in the spiritual realm. <laughs> right? What is he talking about? Now, the Greek word for spirit there is the word pneuma. Pneuma is a very fun Greek word to figure out what it means when it is used. Because the word means breath. The word can mean wind. Like we've been having a lot of pneuma here lately in the last few days, right? It can also mean spirit as in a person's spirit, like the spirit of, of mankind, right? Like the idea of being alive. And then it can also mean and also is rendered to refer directly to the Holy Spirit. It means all these things. 
So it's difficult to find out what he's talking about. Like I said, modern translators tend to use capital letters when they're trying to refer to things with a, um, um, an identity, you know? Like when you see capital S, spirit, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. When you see lowercase s, spirit, he's talking about spirit of man or something else, right? The problem with that, and you'll see in the CSB, it's a capital S. In the English Standard Version, in the American Standard Bible, it's lowercase. The problem with that is in the Greek, there's no capital letters, okay? In the original language, there's no capital letters. There's also no definitive articles, What I mean by definitive article is there's a difference between spirit and the spirit, right? We understand that in English, right? We could refer to um, a a group of people as, as, uh, um, I don't know, I don't have a good example. Anyways, we'll stick with spirit and the spirit, okay? There's a difference. The spirit of man, the spirit. Oh, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? There's a difference there. Um, This verse here might might be better translated because it's the way it actually reads in the Greek as he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in spirit. That's how it actually reads. The word the spirit is the, the that article isn't there in the in original language. And so um, here's my personal opinion, okay? If you disagree with me, that's cool, no problem. But here's my personal opinion that, that when it says here that he was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit, I think what it's referring to there is actually the, the spirit of Jesus, Jesus' spirit. Now, yeah, you could argue with me, duh, Nathan, he's God, so his spirit is the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're not going to go there right now, all right? The idea is talking about Jesus being alive. So he was put to death in the flesh, but his spirit lived is kind of how I would render it. The idea here is that his body, his, his, his body physically died That body remained in the tomb for three days. We know that. There was a resurrection after three days. But in that process of the in-between, even though his body had died, his spirit was alive. Now, how that ties to this section here, um, and this is also my opinion because there's so much disagreement on this, but I personally believe that, that between the time of his body dying and his body being resurrected, okay, in those three days, Um, I believe that is when he did what is described here in verse 19, where it says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. He had a message to proclaim. Other translations say that he went and preached to the spirits in prison, and that has led people to what I believe is inappropriately go, oh, see, see, you could be dead and in hell, and you could be preached, the gospel can be preached to you, and you could have a second chance at salvation. That's not what this is saying. That's why I appreciate how the CSB renders it proclamation. It just simply means a message. He didn't go down to the people who had already had a chance to receive salvation and confess their their faith in God, and oops, they didn't, and they died in there in hell, and he didn't go down there and say, let me give you a second chance to preach the gospel to you again. That's not what it's saying, in my opinion. There was a proclamation made. He had a message to proclaim. He had a message to deliver, and to who? It says there, to the spirits in prison. Now, in the interest of time, and since I'm going to deal with with this on Sunday, um, I'm just going to state what I believe it to be, and then I'll dig into some whys later and kind of back it up with Scripture and whatnot. But simply this, I believe those spirits in prison that is referring to are fallen demons. 
And those spirits in prison are connected to who were, who were disobedient in former times, and he connects it to the antediluvian period, right? The flood period. So I believe he's referring to some fallen demons that, that were put in prison during the time of Noah, and they did something really, really, really bad. Um, even worse than other demons have had or done, because you read other places where the demons are like, oh, Jesus, are you here to cast us out before the appointed time? Don't send us to... And the word they use is the, is the place I'm, ref- I'm believing it's referring to this bottomless pit here. <laughs> Don't send us there. That place is really bad. <laughs> the demons that are there are really bad guys. That's kind of the idea here. But the idea is that Jesus went to them in the spirit realm, made a proclamation to these angels that, that, are, that are in this prison. There's other places in Jude that talk about they're in chains in this prison. It doesn't tell us what the proclamation was. It just says he went and proclaimed a message to them. But in my opinion, I believe his message to them was simply an announcement of his victory. He had paid the price for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future forever. And I believe he just simply went down there and just said, hey, I want all you demons who tried to stop this from happening, demons who maybe tried to corrupt the, the, the genome of humans, demons who tried to you know, do this and do that and kill prophets. You know, I just want you to know what's happening. I won. I died. I paid the price. I defeated evil by dying for the sins of the world and conquering death by physical resurrection. I just wanted you to know that that announcement party's over. (laughs) That's my personal opinion. But again, Peter's point is that in our suffering, whatever Satan uses to block our greater happiness, the greater good, that tries to slow down the, the mission of doing and proclaiming the gospel and living for the Lord and being a light on the hill. Whatever Satan would try to use to, to, to get in the way of that, know that God has a purpose and a plan in the suffering. Just as I believe he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, hey guys, you know what you meant for evil? God meant for good. I did it, you're done. Anyways, the idea is to trust in God's plan. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Rest in that. And so the death of Jesus had purpose. His resurrection promises a new life, free from death, pain, sorrow. I believe his proclamation shows that, that this whole deal, this suffering that Jesus went through was a part of God's plan. And then the fourth thing we see in verse 22, that his glorification shows power. Because it tells us in verse 22 that he had gone into heaven after his resurrection and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. Again, that little angel's authorities and powers is another reference to him having authority over those that, that, that are enchained and incarcerated, and I'll deal with that on Sunday. Anyways, point is, after his resurrection, we know and the Bible teaches that Jesus ascended to glory and is now the supreme authority over everything, everything. When it says that he's at the right hand of God, the right hand simply was a picture, is a, is a position of play, uh, power, a position of prestige, Right? It doesn't mean if you're left-handed that you're ungodly. It doesn't mean that at all. all right? It's just simply this idea that sitting at the right hand of a ruler meant that, that you were recognized to have great prestige and power. And that follows because in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says this. For this reason, God highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
That's the ascension of Jesus Christ. Right? He died, he was resurrected, and he rose to the right hand of the Father. He was exalted. He was given the name above every other name. Supreme authority. But then in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says this. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit. That's one of those fun places where pneuma is used twice. But the Spirit himself, contextually, tells us right there, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Did you catch all that? He was exalted to the right hand of the Father, given supreme authority over all things and everything. And you, through the act of putting your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him for your salvation, the Bible says that you are a co-heir with him that you share equally in the inheritance that he was given. That the power that is Christ's is reserved for you too as a co-heir. What does that mean? Well, it tells us that Jesus died, he was crucified, he made a proclamation, he was resurrected, and then he ascended into heaven at God's right hand and he's going to bring us with him. He's going to bring us with him. And I believe the point of that is that all of Jesus' suffering was leading somewhere. And for Jesus, it led to his glory. His suffering was leading somewhere, and so is yours. It is leading somewhere. And as a child of God, through the power of God, you will get through it. And it is leading to glory. I think we are indeed an embattled minority in this hostile world as Christians, just like Noah was in his time. But just like Noah, God will keep you in the suffering. He will keep you through the suffering, and he will deliver you, deliver you to the other side. God's power promises to bring you to a future that is secured in Jesus Christ, no matter what you're going through. Why? Because he's God. He has the ultimate power to do so. And so when we look at the example of Jesus Christ, we see that suffering, his suffering, which is greater than any we will ever experience, demonstrated purpose. There was a reason behind the suffering, and there's a reason in yours. We see that the resurrection showed the permanence of the promise, that there is a life without suffering and sorrow on the other side of it. Trust that. That his proclamation showed planning, that God knows the process beginning to end and has revealed so much of it to us in his word. So trust in his proclamation that there's a plan for it and that his glorification shows his ultimate power, that he will get you through it to the other side no matter what. Because really what happened in the life of Christ will happen in the life of a follower of Christ. He said that. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If he suffered, we're going to suffer. But your suffering is all for a reason. All the owls are for a reason. There's a purpose. And Jesus, I believe, looked through all of time, all of time, past, present, and future, and he saw you, and he saw me. And he said, Father, it's worth it. If I could bring them into glory, if I could bring them into heaven, I'll do it. I will go through the suffering. 
the reason for this suffering, the purpose, the plan, is so that I could bring them to you, Father. And because I know that reason, I know how to manage each step of it all the way through. I can go through this horrible, excruciating pain and suffering. And I'm doing it to bring them with me. The word tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross. You and I were that joy. And so know, embrace, believe, meditate on these truths that there is indeed purpose in our suffering, that there is hope on the other side of it, that God proclaimed it would happen, and he has the power to get us through all of it, all the way to that promised rest. And so instead of answering why, 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 just say it's happening, I'm in it, but I believe God. Rest in him in the midst of the suffering, and I believe you'll indeed persevere through it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We love your word. We love who you are. But Lord, if I'm going to be honest, we don't really love the suffering all that much. It hurts. But God, you know that. You know all about suffering, God, because for each one of us that call you our Savior, you suffered for our salvation more than we will ever suffer in this life. God, help us to just have that perspective, Lord, in the midst of our suffering, not that the pain will go away, not that it will stop hurting. Yes, Lord, we pray that it would, would, would stop, Lord, but we know there will be something after that that's going to be suffering again. Help us in the midst of the suffering to look to you, your example, and to learn from it, to find comfort through your example in the midst of our suffering. That, God, we are your children. And if we're in a time of suffering, God, you're allowing it. And we may not understand why, Lord, but we know that you're good. We know that you're just. We know that you're holy and righteous. And so help us, Lord, to trust your purpose in our suffering. Help us, Lord, to look at your resurrection as the promise that one day our suffering too will be over. That God, as we look through your word and see your proclamation over and over again, God, that as your children, we will one day be in paradise with you with no more tears and no more sorrow, no more grief, no more death, none of that, God. Lord, I pray that that would bring comfort to those that are suffering. And Lord, that we would know that because you were exalted, that you defeated death, that you overcame the worst suffering imaginable, that God, we too, because the Holy Spirit lives within us, will get through our suffering. And we will get through this life, and we will get all the way into your arms. Lord, we thank you. God, I pray specifically for those that are suffering tonight in this room or online, Lord. God, bless them. Lay your hand upon them, God. Wrap your arms around them, Lord, that they would sense your presence in their life, God, right now. Lord, you're already there, but they would just have a a, a special sense that you are there with them to comfort and to strengthen them, God. Lord, be glorified in our lives. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.